Oh, everybody's over here. Okay, hold on. Okay. Uh, hey, guys, good morning. Um, my name is Derek, as Charlotte sort of hinted at rather heavily there and directly. Um, I am, if, if I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, and I, I see several new faces, this is pretty cool. Um, I am one of the elders at the church, which is why I'm here. And every once in a while, um, I get the opportunity to stand up here and, and babble through a sermon. And hopefully, you know, the Holy Spirit takes over and makes it mean something to you. Um, so that's where we find ourselves today. Um, <clears throat> as we've gone through the book of Acts, it, it seems like, and we've discussed this in my community group a time or two, but it, but it seems like as, as often as we see the massive sort of victories for the kingdom of God that we saw in um, Acts 19 last week, there are as many moments, if not more, that follow in the latter part of Acts 19, where the, the merchants get all upset and start a riot. And, and I love the way that, um, that, that Luke addresses it. He says that, that there were so many people out there yelling and shouting that, that at one point people didn't really know what they were yelling about, um, but they were just out there yelling like Brick Tamlin in a, in a News Channel 4 meeting. And <clears throat> thank you for the four of you who have seen that movie and got the reference. And so um, it's a little bit, I think, sort of, on the one hand, confusing that, that we see things like an entire city's economy that's so intricately tied to idolatry, disrupted to the point where the merchants go out and start rioting about it. Um, it, it that, that, that we have moments where people are so transformed by the gospel that they're willing to burn $6 million worth of instruments of sin, and still the riots happen. Still, the apostles are arrested and beaten. Still, the apostles of, uh, of God, the original, um, well, the original 11 plus Peter, or plus Paul, um, m most of them we know from history did not live comfortable, easy lives, even though they were pursuing relentlessly the calling of the gospel that God has given them. A and so, on the one hand, it's confusing because we see these victories, and, and yet as many moments of what we might consider defeat or struggle, but it can also be pretty encouraging because as I've uh, tried to say before um, in, in sermons, and something that we say a lot in, in this church is that the, the Bible has wisdom for all moments. The Bible is not just uh, this book of um, positive aspirations designed to just like make you feel better about the life that you're living and, and sort of ignore the world around you. The Bible actually affirms, I think, uh, rather appropriately, that, that life is difficult. That even when you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, it might not feel that way. Even when you're pursuing the will of God, you are following his plan for your life, there are going to be plenty of moments where, gosh, are you sure? And so in, in that way, it can be encouraging that we see, um, see this happen through the book of Acts. And we shouldn't lose sight of the fact, right, that, that Jesus says in the Gospel of John, he says to the disciples, to the apostles, um, don't be surprised when the world hates you because they hated me first. And they're, they're not going to treat you any better necessarily than they treated me. So, so that's the word to Christians, but not everybody falls in that class, like, let's be honest. And, and suffering seems to happen regardless of whether you're doing what you're supposed to do or not, regardless of whether you are in the family of God or not. Suffering um, is just a part of our world. 
as we gather together this morning, I'm acutely aware of the fact um, that, that many of us may well be in that number of those who, who suffer and struggle. There's no shortage of reasons to feel discouraged, are there? Um, you could be struggling with loneliness, anxiety, uh, loss of income because of this, this pandemic that continues. You could be suffering through struggling with um, f- fear or, or hurt, uh, anger, confusion, um, as our, our nation is once again forced to grapple with the fact that um, our, our work of reconciliation over racism and injustice is incomplete. Or maybe your, your suffering, maybe your anguish, your angst, your frustration, maybe it comes from more of the, the routine, everyday things, the, the things that happened before the world turned upside down, it feels like. Things like um, fractured relationships with family and friends. Um, maybe it's general concerns, stress from school, stress about your job, your work is, is busy. It could be problems with family. There are plenty of reasons to struggle. And so what I want to show you during our time in Acts 20, focusing on sort of these last few sections that, um, that Charlotte read for us as a backdrop, I want to show you that, that God's people have been empowered to provide encouragement to a world that seems to always be hurting from something. And so just to be safe, um, since I'm talking about encouragement, I, I thought it would be a good idea to look up the word. And I got this idea because when I told my community group on Wednesday that I was preaching on encouragement, they laughed um, pretty immediately. Like I didn't even get to like go on with my sentence, like, hey, I'm preaching on encouragement, laughter, um, which told me something. And it's fair. Encouragement is not necessarily um, my spiritual gifting. Um, I, I thank you again for affirming that. Um, but it's something that I've been working on, right? But I wanted to make sure that I had the concept nailed down for this sermon. So here's the definition that I'm using. This is, you know, there, there are a few options that you can go to because words seem to have changing meanings. But um, I, I specifically want to focus on this definition, that encouragement is to provide support, comfort, or hope to someone. To provide support, comfort, or hope. Now, I want to ask you to take a moment and, and think before we get started through this sermon. But I thought you already started. Fair question, but just bear with me. Um, I, I want you to think about someone in your life who is suffering. Think about someone you know. Uh, it don't, I don't care how well you know them, but I think it would probably help for later purposes if you know them well enough to talk to them. Um, think about someone you know who is suffering or struggling. This might be your one for instance, the, the, our, our one, if you're new here with us, is, is someone that we have identified at uh, some point last year in the fall where um, we are specifically intentionally trying to engage them for the gospel. We are specifically intentionally praying for them. We are making time for them in our lives. Um, they, are, um, they are a big focus. So maybe it's your one. Write down the name if you're taking notes. If you haven't already, uh, you're a little behind. I, I'm going to give you a minute to... Um, to think through this. When you've got this person in mind, I I want you to answer these three questions. Number one, 
Are you yourself suffering in a way that makes it difficult to be an encouragement to this person? Are you yourself suffering in a way that makes it difficult to be an encouragement to this person? Second question is, how can you be an encouragement to this person? How can you offer them support, comfort, or hope? How can you be an encouragement to them? And then third, where are they looking for encouragement? Where where is this person, I don't know what to do with my hands, where is this person looking to to find support, comfort, and hope? These are probably, to be fair, these are probably difficult questions to answer. One, because we don't often think through the many layers of a situation. Often we're we're pretty reactionary. We don't really dig into this kind of thing. Um, But also, like, it's 8.51, and uh, many of you haven't finished your first pot of coffee. So to help get through these questions, I want to share with you three characteristics of encouragement, true, lasting encouragement that we see in the scriptures. This is not, by any stretch of the imagination, an exhaustive list. Um, I've tried to find the three that that are going to get you started the quickest um, on this this journey. Uh, You can probably think of more. I've got three. I tried to get four. I I really wanted to have a four-point sermon for the first time in my life. I couldn't do it. Um, I just ran out of time in my papers. So uh, just the three then. Number one, the first characteristic of encouragement, encouragement is inherently tied to community. Encouragement is inherently tied to community. Second, encouragement is expressed through actions and words. Encouragement is expressed through actions and words. And third, encouragement encouragement is intimately connected to God and the gospel. True, lasting encouragement is connected to God and the gospel. So I want to pray again real quick before we start going, um, and then, you know. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for um, this cool morning. I thank you for the the ability to gather together with brothers and sisters um, who may well be hurting or suffering in some way and and address this topic of encouragement. But God, um, I confess to you and to to these brothers and sisters that encouragement is not a a natural strength of mine. And I know that you have called us to be encouraged. You have called us to bear one another's burdens. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak through me this morning to encourage, to exhort this body into action for the sake of the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
All right, so uh, last week at the end of Acts 19, we saw that Paul was sort of waiting until things were safe so that he could leave. And and really, it it wasn't so much that he was waiting for safety as his friends were telling him, no, Paul, don't go outside, you're going to get killed, Um, which is sort of a different thing. Um, Paul, Paul, before he leaves, when things finally quiet down, Luke tells us at the beginning of Acts 20 and like verses one through three or four, that, um, that before he left, Paul gathers with the, the church, the disciples in Ephesus and encourages them. And then, and then Paul goes on this journey, what we call his, uh, I believe, a third missionary journey, where he begins going back through all of the churches in, uh, in, his, in his area, uh, sorry, in his area, in his region, um, like he's a regional sales manager, sorry. Um, so he, he travels back through Asia up to Macedonia, where he encourages the disciples. And then he travels south down into Greece, where he encourages the disciples. And then he turns around after spending three months with the Corinthians in the the province of Greece and then begins to encourage the disciples elsewhere um, back along that same route. And so where we pick up at this point in Acts 20, Paul has now gone back through all of these churches, um, not every single one, but he's hit the, the big ones along his arc and he's back in Asia, modern Turkey, just south of the city of Ephesus in the town called Miletus. Um, Encouragement has been his mission here. When he gets to Miletus, he, he wants to continue encouraging. This isn't the end of his journey, right? Like we know that Acts continues after chapter 20. Um, he continues on through to Jerusalem where some things happen. But while he's in Miletus, he sends for the Ephesian elders to come and meet with him because they are, it seems like they're kind of special to him compared to some of the other groups. He spent three years in Ephesus working with these men. Um, to plant the church, to spread the gospel. They saw massive victories. They endured um, hardships together. And as he encourages them, he begins in verse, um, or sorry, he shares also in verse 23 that, sorry, let me back up. As he begins to encourage them, he he does this interesting thing. He doesn't say like, man, that was really great. We had a really great time. I'm really going to miss you guys. Peace. No, what does he do? He says that you yourselves know that I lived with you all this time, serving the Lord in humility with tears through trials. I taught the word of God. I taught the gospel from house to house. I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. This, is, this doesn't start off like super encouraging. He's reminding them like, hey, remember that time that we were together working for the Lord? Gosh, I was miserable. It's kind of interesting. Um, and then he says in verse 23, as he continues to address them, that, that on his journey through this work of encouraging all the disciples around the region, He doesn't really know why he's being driven to the city of Jerusalem, but he says that in every town it has been testified to him by the same Holy Spirit that's driving him to Jerusalem that he is going to be imprisoned, that he's going to suffer there. Whether he knows it or not at this point, we know that that he's going to die shortly after that. 
but he says imprisonment and afflictions await. And we can look beyond just these verses and see that there are, there are numerous references to the sufferings that Paul himself endured. In fact, if you look all the way back to Paul's conversion, when Jesus shows up to Ananias, one of his disciples, and he says, um, hey, listen, small thing, I'm sending Saul of Tarsus to you, that guy who's been persecuting and murdering Christians. His name's Paul now. He's one of us. I'm going to make him my messenger to the Gentiles. And Ananias is like, whoa, whoa, whoa hold up. Could you, could you start that over again? I missed, I missed the beginning of it. You said, who now? And Jesus says this to Ananias. He says, I have chosen him as my instrument to make my name known among the Gentiles. And he will suffer for the sake of my name. Specifically what Jesus says at the direct quote is, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And Jesus was not kidding. As I, as I researched for this, trying to sort of refresh my memory on everything that we've seen in Acts, I came across, and this is not an exaggeration, I found a 12-page, single-space, 12-point font list of verses that reference Paul's suffering. That's longer than this sermon, in case you were wondering. Um, mercifully. Uh, my point is that I don't want you to think for a second that as Paul traveled around to these churches spreading encouragement, that he in any way was experiencing either physical or emotional comfort. He was not experiencing an easy time by any stretch of the imagination. And maybe you're not either. So I want real quickly to jump back to that first question that I asked you. Are you suffering in some way that prevents you from encouraging others? If that's true of you, I want you to hear me on this. You're not alone. And the way we handle that personal struggle is not to pack it down deep put on a happy face for the sake of the gospel and go around telling everybody you're fine when they ask you this afternoon, when church is over, how are you doing? You are sitting in the midst of brothers and sisters in Christ who were so motivated by the gospel that they came here this morning, some traveling pretty good distances, to sit in the Florida morning in June to worship with you. They did not do this because it seemed like a fun idea. My hands are like sweaty right now, just from like the, well, not sweaty, that's kind of gross, but like just from the, the, the humidity in the air. And I'm not even doing anything but standing here under a shade and a breeze. Like this is not great. But the people who have come out here have done this because they care about the local body. So if you're struggling, you're not alone. And, and I'll, I'll use... As example, like Paul does, I'm going to use myself, my wife and I. My wife and I are more in that latter category, right? Like we're not struggling with the, the huge, massive issues that a lot of people are right now. We're, we're in more of that everyday mode. Um, by God's grace, like it's not, it doesn't make us better or worse than anybody. It's just where we are. Um, we haven't slept through the night in three months because God blessed us 
with a third child who is healthy and has a set of pipes on him that he likes to ring off at odd hours of the night. But our, our three-month-old, part of the reason he's not sleeping is because several weeks ago, we realized that he wasn't actually eating enough. And so when he was going to sleep, he was waking up hungry. But he wasn't able to eat enough so that as Caitlin was getting up with him and trying to feed him, losing more and more sleep that she wouldn't normally be losing at this point, because by now he should be sleeping through the night, um, he wasn't getting enough food. He literally physically couldn't eat enough to sustain himself. And so he was fussy and he was cranky. And, and, and to say that it stressed my wife out, like, yeah, I found it stressful, but to say that it stressed my wife out is a supreme understatement because she's looking at this like her, her job is to make sure that this child is fed and safe and happy and she's not able to do it. It's not her fault, but that's what she's in and that's what she's facing. At the same time, we have a five-year-old and a two-year-old who we love very, very much. And sometimes I say that to them more as a reminder to myself than an affirmation of my affection for them. B because they are, um, they are so much to handle. And it's not their fault. They're five and two. That's what they do. But in the midst of their development, their very healthy young boy brother's development, um, I'm working from home under a lot of stress. I have this job that seems to continue to take more and more of my time and, and more and more of my hair. And, and Caitlin has Graham, who she has to spend the majority of her day with, and literally, fit, like, she can't get up and be with those boys, Tripp and William, while she's feeding Graham, while she's trying to put him to sleep. It, she's, she's stuck. And so we find ourselves then, not only are we run additionally ragged trying to keep up with normal, healthy boys, but, but we then are reacting more often in anger towards them than love for them. And I can't tell you how many different ways I have had to apologize to my children over the last three months. I have become an expert. And it makes us feel like failures. I used to have this sort of confidence with my parenting that I, I may not have all the answers, but I know where the answers come from and I can work to apply those with my spouse. And that confidence has been absolutely uprooted as we've continued to struggle through this. I don't really feel empowered to do anything, much less come in here and talk to you about how we as a church are empowered to share the love of God, to share encouragement. And that's just minor compared to what some people are dealing with. If you find yourself in a similar state of heart, I want you to know, and I've had to be reminding myself of this as well, God does not command us to ignore our pain, and our suffering in order to share encouragement with others. They are not mutually exclusive. There is no command of scripture that you get your own house in order before you reach out to show compassion to somebody else. It's absolutely critical that we acknowledge that because that's not what Paul's doing here, right? Paul is not putting on a happy face. He is putting his struggles at the forefront while I was with you and we were working together, it was hard. And I know that I'm going to suffer more. That's part of his encouragement.
And if you read through the New Testament, you're also going to find multiple examples of Paul being encouraged in the midst of his difficulty, even as he is working to encourage others. So, so remember the timelines that we're dealing with here, right? So we have the four Gospels that overlap in their timeline, kind of perfectly. And then we have Acts. And Acts tells us the story of the Acts of the Apostles, right? This is the, the founding of the early church. And then beyond Acts, we have Romans and Corinthians and Ephesians and Galatians and Revelations. And also all of these things, I know they weren't in order, Kevin, don't look at me like that. All, all of these letters to these churches that Paul wrote are written around the time that we see Paul here landing in Miletus to meet with the Ephesian elders to encourage them. There are other things that we can look at to get context to understand this moment. And so, so here are a few as we start to turn our attention toward that first true character, the first characteristic of true encouragement. Encouragement is inherently tied to community and to solid relationships. In Galatians 2.6, we are commanded to bear one another's burdens. We have to realize that this is not merely a command to help others. It is also a command that we would be known by others and have our burdens shared as well. My wife and I, in the midst of this difficulty, I can't tell you how many times that we have woken up on Wednesday morning at, you know, three in the morning and, and just thrown out the idea, like, what if we canceled community group tonight? Our community group meets on Wednesday night. What if we canceled tonight? We just don't really feel it. We haven't done that yet. Because as Fetterman so beautifully articulated to us a couple of weeks ago in his sermon on the importance of community, encouragement comes from community. Encouragement comes from being known by others. Caitlin and I choose to force ourselves sometimes to continue holding our community group because when those people come to our house, when those brothers and sisters gather together with us um, to struggle through Zoom connections or eat you know, ice cream for the 12th time this, this month, um, we find encouragement. We, we share those burdens with us. And, and I have friends in the community group who are reaching out during the week, asking me how things are going, giving me a chance to check in, give an update, do a bit of a heart check. I find encouragement there. We share our burdens with them. They share our burdens with us. And so through community, we are mutually encouraged. Here, here are some examples in Paul's life um, that happen around this time. Um, we clearly see, for instance, in his letter to the Romans, that Paul was looking to share those burdens. He wasn't content to sit back and wait for someone to ask him, how you doing? Or force him to draw it out. Instead, Paul writes in his introduction, right in the first chapter, starting in verse 9, he says to the church in Rome, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. I want your fellowship, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is he clarifies, that we may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith, both yours and mine. 
Around the same time as this letter was written, Paul experienced a great deal of anguish and turmoil over having to send a stern rebuke to the church in Corinthians. Um, he, he was so ah, just over this that he was scared to go there after he sent the letter and, and sent Titus ahead of him to sort of test the waters and let him know of like, are they, are they cool? Are we cool? Or can we talk about this now? Or are they just really mad? And I'm going to have to send another letter. He sent like four more or five more letters, but only two of them made in the Bible. Um, and and when, when Titus returns to him, Paul sends another letter and he writes this in 2 Corinthians 7. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Again, this is the man who is empowered by the Holy Spirit to supernaturally impact the founding of God's church. And he says, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told you of my longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Paul rebukes them. He's anguished over this. Titus helps him to feel comforted. It's easy to imagine that, that maybe as, um, as they both serve in the office of elder, that, that maybe they sort of lamented together. Yeah, no, I've been in similar situations. We've had to rebuke and it's uncomfortable and I don't like it and it makes me feel so miserable, but it's, it's important for the gospel. He's comforted by that affection with Titus. And then two, he is comforted as the church in Corinthians responds positively to his um, attempt at convicting them. They respond to the conviction of the spirit and they repent. And so their relationship is restored. It's redeemed. Again, Paul highlights the importance of community in providing encouragement. Even though he's still hurting. Even though the suffering continues. And, and the fact that this occurs within community sort of brings us into our second point, right? Our second characteristic of true lasting encouragement. Encouragement is expressed through actions and words. Now, now put a pin in the words part for a second. We're going to talk about the proper role of words in a minute in my next point, but that's beside the point. Um, I, I want to first look at the proper role of action. Look again at Paul's address to the Ephesian elders. Starting in verse 18, he says this. Hi, Trip. You know yourselves how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. There, I'm with you, lived with you, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials that happened to me. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching to you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks the repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, and then Paul also reminds them in verse 35, he says this, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, work is active, 
by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And, and just before this address at the beginning of chapter 20, Paul's been traveling back and forth through Asia, through Greece, through um, all of these regions, moving, right? It's active. Encouragement can't be merely words. Even in Paul's letter to the church in Rome, when he says to them in words, I want to come see you, it's connected to a desire for action. The biblical model for encouragement, for giving support, comfort, and hope is linked to actions. Words without actions are meaningless. And even even our secular society understands this. How many of you have heard of the term virtue signaling? Lots of hands going up. So, so virtue signaling is actually normally used in a negative connotation. It's sort of this like trump card in a debate. My phrasing might not be the best, but it's sort of this way to stop someone in their tracks, that you're only talking a good game. You're not really doing anything about it, so I don't really care what you have to say. Even though it's normally used as a, a cudgel to like sort of stop conversation, I would submit to you that the Bible actually affirms the, the banality, the, the falseness of words without action. The Apostle James, the brother of Jesus, is where I would turn for this. He writes in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, that faith without works is dead. And then so much argument arose in the church. Um, but it's true, right? Faith without works is dead. You can't merely profess with your mouth, using your words, that you believe in Jesus Christ, that you believe that God is sovereign, that you believe you have been saved, and then do nothing in light of that new state. He uses this example. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? It's worthless. We can see this in how God interacted with his people in the Old Testament too, right? Because again, as, as Paul wasn't content just to put into words his desire to offer encouragement. Um, God also is not content just to put on paper a desire, just words. He doesn't just voice his care. God doesn't just voice his care for the poor, the marginalized, and the suffering through the words of his law. God acts directly on their behalf. There are so many instances in the Bible. This is one of those moments where I had to like, I actually had to ask people to help me cut things out because I really wanted to just blast you with Old Testament references as I always do, but I chose to. Um, lie three. So when God is on his way to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, he makes a pit stop at Abraham's house. And Abraham casually, like you do when you're speaking to the Almighty, says, what are you doing? And God says, after some hemming and hawing with himself, he says, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. And their sin is very grave. And I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. God gets involved. 
Later, I don't know if I can say this without checking it up. Later, when all of Israel was enslaved by the Egyptian empire, they're beaten and oppressed. The, the Egyptians are, are making their lives miserable just for the sake of making their lives miserable because they hate them. They're less than a person. God shows up to Moses in Exodus chapter three and says this, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I have heard their cries because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up to a land into a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey. God doesn't just say, man, that must be awful. But it's not going to be that way forever. Egypt won't always be in power. Don't worry. He offers them hope by not only acknowledging their situation, but moving to act on their behalf. He does something about it. Biblical encouragement then can't be virtue signaling. It can't be. God shows us that it takes action. So so let's consider once again this question. What can you do to be an encouragement to others through your actions? So obviously, there's the work of meeting the immediate needs. Right? God, God identifies that Israel is suffering in slavery, and so he moves to free them from slavery. That's their immediate need. But the work doesn't stop there. It continues, right? So we need to look at meeting immediate needs. We can try to do something to positively impact the situation of this person that we're thinking of. We can be at their side to grieve with them and weep with them. If you've ever been in a, in a particularly painful moment, you know how powerful the act of just being present can be for you. When a friend just sits with you and they don't give you answers, they don't tell you it's going to be better, they just sit with you and cry. These actions are meaningful and they can't be overlooked. But we have to also understand that encouragement is also connected to God and the gospel. And our words and our actions need to reflect that. This is where we can start to look at how the church, both collectively and individually, is empowered to provide encouragement and where I'll also sort of address the words here in just a second. Look again at what Paul says to the Ephesian elders in verse 22. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And then he goes on as he begins to wrap up. He says in in verse 30 or 31, I don't have it right in front of me, but he says uh, something to the effect of, and I commend you to the God of grace to carry you through the afflictions that are going to await you in the future. 
So, so it's, it's pretty clear that, that this sort of enduring hope that produces a lasting encouragement, a, a meaningful encouragement, is connected to this gospel, to this God of grace. But can you imagine how powerful that hope has to be that Paul would consider his life of comparatively less value because he needs to carry this message to others who are hurting and suffering. He needs to press through his suffering as he receives encouragement to be an encouragement to others in this same gospel. That has got to be super powerful. But that's what it is. It's hope. It's true, lasting, and irrevocable hope. Now, the common definition that we're using for encouragement here, yes, it includes the concept of support and comfort. Those are not unimportant. But I think that if we look through the scriptures and we, we look at um, elements of hope that are said either directly or indirectly, what we see is that, um, or sorry, encouragement. When we look at aspects of encouragement in the scriptures, it is almost all hung on this concept of providing hope. Here's why. Because, because sometimes when, when we mean well, we try to be optimists. Someone is hurting and we want to be optimistic. We want to say, hey, listen, God has a plan. Shut up. Don't say that to somebody who's hurting. Don't. Let them come to that understanding. Maybe, maybe in six months to a year, you can come back and say that. But I can remember quite distinctly when my grandfather died in a, in a very sudden traumatic accident, um, just days shy of his 55th wedding anniversary with my grandmother. The streams of people that knew our family, intimately or not, coming through her house for days, because we live in the Appalachian Mountains, and that's what you do. You gather together for days and you eat fried chicken and talk about how much you love the person. It's really fantastic. It's a great way to go. Um, but people would come through and, and we would hear some version of that. Yeah, you know, just when it's your time, it's your time. God takes you when he's ready. Don't worry. He's not suffering anymore. And at one point, my grandmother, who's just, she's, a, she's sweet, um, she, she said to me just sort of quietly as somebody was going through the line saying this for the hundredth time at the viewing, the body of her now deceased husband laying next to her. And she goes, I wish they'd just shut up. She was bitter. And, and, and the truth that my grandfather was in a better place didn't help. That didn't salve the, the bitter the truth that, that God has a plan and he's sovereign and we can trust in him, that didn't make it better. Consider, consider this. Optimism ignores your circumstances and tells you to just keep your chin up. Hope presses in. It tells you, yes, this is terrible. Yes, this hurts. Yes, you can mourn. Yes, you can grieve. And yet know that a true and better version of this existence waits. And not in a way, by the way, that diminishes the here and now. The gospel doesn't tell you to keep your chin up and press on. It actually acknowledges the hurt and suffering that exists, that pervades this world. More than that, the gospel tells us that the suffering is actually a lot worse than we could have imagined. 
because there's nothing we can do about the cause. We can't fix the brokenness in this world. Suffering will continue because sin entered the world. Sin has ravaged God's creation, taken away from it its ability to pursue its design. It's relationship, all of creation, ours, the trees, the sound like Yoda, all of creation has been now separated from God in a way that we cannot repair. We can't just flip a switch or do the right thing and bring it back together. So it's worse than we could have imagined because yeah, you might be suffering, but that suffering is going to keep happening in some form or another. The root cause of the suffering, though, is corrected through the gospel. That not only tells us how bad things are, but tells us how much God loves us, that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to be a sacrifice, to pay the debt of sin that we owe, to repair that relationship so that we can be reconciled to the Father through his righteousness. But the gospel goes on. And here's where the continued hope comes from. Because if, if it stopped there, if it stopped with just the fact that your relationship with God was repaired, then all you have to hope for is that one day it's just not going to, like, at least I have God. Like, everything is miserable, but at least I have God. But it's more than that, isn't it? It's deeper than that. Because the gospel also applies to all of creation. And, and the gospel tells us that there is a day coming when God is going to undo the pain. He's going to undo the hurt. Everything bad that had happened is going to come untrue. Wipe away every tear from the eyes. Death will be no more. Neither will be suffering or sickness. God's going to repair everything. And we know this because as we look back at Jesus on the cross, we see him die, which gives us that justification, but then he's resurrected. He comes back demonstrating that God has power over this. And if we are reconciled to him through Christ, that is true of us as well. We will be reconciled. We will be remade. All of creation will, will have this new glorified, better and perfected state. Jesus came to earth to preach this message. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, he said. He made that way by dying for us. And so hope cannot just stop at good actions to improve someone's situation. The encouragement, the hope that we give has to be connected to this power of the gospel message, the power of the gospel of the God of grace. Because just changing circumstances isn't going to give you lasting encouragement. Consider the story of Job. God allows Satan to wreck Job's life to see if he would curse God. Hey, I'll bet you if I take everything away from him. He only loves you because you've been good to him. Let me take everything away. And then he's going to curse you and you'll see he doesn't love you as much as you think. And God says what? All right. Good. Before the end of the first chapter, Job's family, his children, are killed in one fell swoop. The house falls down on him and kills him. And then, shortly after that, servants come up to tell him that his sons have died, and then his children have all died, and then 
another servant runs up and goes, oh my gosh, Job, like everything that you own is gone. Like people have come and stolen all your stuff. Your houses are all gone. You've got nothing. That's the first chapter of a 42 chapter book. First chapter. In the second chapter, Satan takes Job's health. And on top of the supreme, I mean, I can't imagine the amount of grief and misery that he was experiencing from the loss of his family, let alone the, the law, his children, let alone the loss of his, his entire means of production. All of his animals, all of his wealth, all gone. But then Satan takes the rest of his health, strikes him with boils. He's suffering. And then you know what happens? Just like icing on the cake, God's wife comes up to him and is like, hey, you should just curse God and die. Just give up. You're so miserable. Die. And, and then there's this really beautiful moment at, at the end of chapter three, after his wife tells him to just give up and die. Job's friends travel from all over the country to come to him. And it says that, that when they were a long way off, they saw Job and they couldn't even recognize him because he had been so marred by suffering, by sickness. And they all tore their clothes and they put dust on their head to show their mourning. And they just sat in silence with him, crying for seven days. And then they ruined it. Because as Job began to lament over his suffering, they did the same thing that those people tried to do with my grandmother. They tried to share truth with him in order to try and make him feel better. Hey, you know what, um, Job, you know, you're going through all this, but, but you, you need to just repent to God. Repent of your sin and God's going to make this better and you won't have to suffer anymore. And Job pushes back and says, no, 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 I I have done everything I am supposed to do. I have followed the law. I have been a good, upstanding man. People came to me for counsel and they said, yeah, well, you must have something going on clearly. And this goes on for 34 chapters, his friends telling him that his suffering is basically his fault. And doing so by sharing words of truth that are misguided or at best maybe misunderstood right? Because they were telling Job that he was suffering because of his sin, but we know that's not the case. And, and, and it gets so much for Job that he, he finally, he, he just lashes out and is just so bitter, not only towards his friends, but also towards God. He really does start saying like, you know what? Just, I wish that I hadn't even been born. This is terrible. I don't know what God was doing here, but I'm miserable. This is terrible. Not quite cursing God. Certainly questioning him. The words that we say to people have the power in that moment of of pain and suffering to either point them toward truth that can build them up or point them toward truth that is going to make their burdens worse. Job's friends did the latter. And God rebuked them for it. He shows up, and and I'll jump ahead a little bit. He shows up, and, and he says to Job's friends, I will not forgive you for speaking words about me that were not true to my servant, Job. And I want you to go and I want you to make these sacrifices, but I'm not going to forgive you unless Job asks. God was so mad that their words made it worse. I'm oversimplifying, but he's so mad that their words made it worse. That God's like, no. 
Instead, our words need to be rooted in a truth that provides us lasting hope, this long view, right? And timing matters. Again, you don't want to do this immediately, depending on the situation. You've got to feel it out. But when Job shows up, when God shows up to Job in, in towards the latter part of the book, verse 36, 37, or chapter 36, 37, God doesn't pat him on the back and say, I'm sorry this happened to you, but here's the thing. Satan and I had a bet and I won. He just begins to recount to Job pretty sternly, which is unique to Job, right? Like God doesn't always come in like this, but God came in pretty heavy and just starts going through all of the ways that he is sovereign over creation. All of the ways that his wisdom is above Job's. All of the ways that he is just holy and perfect and good. And Job's response in the middle is silence. God gives him a chance to respond. Job can't say anything. So God continues to make his point. And finally, Job says this. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It may not sound like it, but what's happening here is Job's faith in the Lord was renewed. It was refreshed. Because God revealed to him the full weight of his glory, and in so doing, provides Job with a sort of hope. Reminding him that, yes, you've lost everything, and in this moment, you are suffering greatly, and you might just want to die. But I'm still sovereign. You are still my servant. And as I have provided for the Leviathan, I have provided for the lions, I have provided for the forests, I'm still providing for you. And that's the moment where Job gets hope. If you're at all familiar with the story, you know that, that at some point shortly thereafter, Job gets stuff back, his comforts return. But those are not what bring him hope. And it's so important that we understand this. The story finishes like this. We're told that, um, that the Lord blessed Job's latter days more than his beginning. And then we're told that, that he doesn't, his children don't come back from the dead. He doesn't get the old wealth restored to him. He has more children. He has a, a different family, right? Like God, God has restored family to him in that way. God restores his wealth to him. That he had, he had more money and more comfort than he had before. And he was so wealthy that even his daughters were given a first inheritance which culturally is incredible, right? But here's what you need to see. Job's story, as good as it is to help us process through suffering, Job's story is ultimately just a prelude to Christ, to this gospel that has empowered Paul to seek encouragement, to give encouragement, and to, to continue pressing through the challenges, the affliction, the suffering with a sort of hope that doesn't throw them out the window, but makes them worth it. Like Job, Jesus was made to suffer that we didn't deserve it. 
Like Job, Jesus intercedes on our behalf, though we are hopelessly sinful, though our, our, our mouths have spoken proverbial lies and, and actual lies. Like Job, there's, there's more, there is more waiting for us through our restored faith, through a reconciled relationship to God. There's more waiting for us there than what we have now or what we might have lost. I want you to see that this lasting permanent hope that can lift our heads up, even in the midst of anguish, is only available if we're drawing from the source of ultimate hope that's found in Jesus Christ. No matter the reason for your suffering, God is using it to bring you nearer to him. That's true of your friend that you thought of who's suffering and could use encouragement. As Paul experienced anguish and turmoil, he clung to this gospel of God's grace, this hope that Jesus had erased his debt of sin, was working to reconcile all things to himself. And whatever the burdens you carry might be, I can promise you that they're not more powerful than the gospel of the grace of God. That gospel that comforted Job and came down to liberate Israel and gave Paul hope. We are empowered by the same gospel. 